All right. Welcome to another episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, we've got Dan Greer. You'll hear a little bit about his accomplishments as the podcast kicks off. But what I was most excited about was hearing how Dan is one of those people that knows how to level up. So, you know, there's always that saying where the average of the five people that we surround ourselves with, well, he knows like, for instance, in a running aspect, if he needs to get faster, who are those guys he needs to level up with? But I'm also grateful that he's one of those guys that I get to level up with just being around him, knowing and seeing what he's doing and leading by example and pushing himself and simply working through grit. We're not the most talented people. We're not the most technical people, but the ability to persevere and simply keep going. I'm thankful that I know Dan, that he's setting the example that he is. And the other thing that stuck out to me in this podcast was the raw emotion of like why he does the pan mass challenge and why he's fighting to raise money, you know, selflessly for other people where initially he didn't have a direct connection to cancer. He does now like most of us, but he started for the cause to make an impact. And that really shows his true character of, of what he stands for in the core And then at the end of the episode, when he talks about happiness and kind of leaving the legacy behind the, you can feel the meaning and how important it is to him. And I hope one day to, you know, leave the same legacy for my kids. So thank you, Dan, for leveling us all up and joining us on My Average Greatness. We're excited to hear the rest of the episode. You were not designed to be average. Average. You were designed for greatness. Greatness. This is My Average Greatness. We'll interview people who are doing amazingly great things and listen to their unique stories of greatness. Get ready to be inspired. Broadcasting around the globe. Around the globe. This is My Average Greatness. And this is Kevin Bartlett. Welcome to another episode of My Average Greatness. Today, we have Dan Greer joining us. A little bit about Dan. He's an accomplished athlete who's done 60-plus triathlons, 14 marathons, but more importantly, has completed 23 pan-mass challenges and raised over $200,000 for the cause. He's a certified ski instructor, triathlon coach, and successful in his career as well as in his family life. Please welcome Dan Greer to My Average Greatness. How you doing, Dan? Doing great, Kevin. Thanks a lot. Awesome. We appreciate you joining us today. And, um, you know, we've got a chance to get to know each other through the work aspect, but in doing so, we quickly found a mutual connection in terms of the Ironman sport and, and distance and endurance athletes or endurance sports, I guess is the right word. And, you know, from that kind of led to me reaching out to you and asking you to be on this podcast for the sheer reason of not many people do endurance sports and really kind of understand like what it means. Thank you for for joining and really to kind of kick things off. Most of us don't just jump right into endurance sports. Let's kind of start back from, you know, high school, middle school days. What was your, were you involved heavily in athletes at that time or athletics? So pretty interesting. My dad was not really into sports, um, but I had an uncle that was really into kind of all the sports and did the sports with his kids. 
Um, so through him, I did, you know, all the normal sports growing up. I, normal, I guess, is, is, a, is, a t- is a tough word. But I did uh, football when I was younger. Um, I was a big kid. So actually, they, they liked me in football because I, I could, you know, could play with kids my own age. And I was a little bigger than them. Um, unfortunately that got to the age where they did it by weight and, uh, I was so big, I was going to be playing with kids that were two or three years older than me. So that got cut short. Um, I think pretty smartly by my parents. Um, but I played baseball and basketball all up through high school. Um, yeah, so, you know, kind of, kind of normal sports life, but, um, yeah. And then I also raced BMX as a kid, which I really, really enjoyed. Awesome. So did you have other friends that would ride BMX with you or is that something that you did solo? Oh no, it was a total neighborhood sport. We, a uh, whole group of us, it was almost like a bike gang in our neighborhood. We <laughs> you know, had our BMX bikes, rode them around the neighborhood, beat, uh, built stupid ramps that no one should have gone off of and dared each other to do it. Um, you know, all in the age where no one wore helmets or any kind of protective gear. So it's, uh, it's kind of a miracle that, uh, that I'm as in one piece as I am right now. But yeah, so we, we built tracks in the woods and raced on our own. And then, you know, they, they opened a track and we, we all loved it and did it for a, pretty long period of time. And most of my friends actually did pretty well. And the funniest thing is they, they, they stopped racing at the track because it was supposed to be torn down to build condos. And I think to this day, it's still there. Those condos never happened. So they kind of tore apart our fun sport and, uh, and nothing ever came of it, which is kind of a bummer. Oh, I've got, I've got some good memories of building jumps and ramps and having a little BMX track and on yep. our property and in the woods as well. I think there's a, there's a story pre helmet where my sister broke her collarbone, but that's, that's for another day. Nice. Um, so when you got into high school, did you maintain similar athletics of BMX and football and baseball or did you, so what did you do there? Yeah. So BMX stopped when I was about 14, I think. So that's like maybe freshman year ish. Um, I did play the town sport leagues of baseball and basketball, right? Pretty much all the way through high school. Um, but I didn't do school sports because I was actually in the band. Uh, I started drumming when I was in the fourth grade and I kept that up through high school and actually did it in a non-school affiliated uh, group about four years after high school. Okay. And from there, interesting fact, you taught percussion at, was it Boston College? I did. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So uh, actually one, one pre, pre-fact to that is after... I, I marched in a, in a unit called the Boston Crusaders Drum and Bugle Corps, and they're a private organization that tours in the summer and competes all around the country. Um, after my last year, you can only do that. Uh, it's called Junior Drum and Bugle Corps because you can only do it till you're 21. Um, after I aged out of that, that the following fall, I actually marched in the marching band at Boston College. Now, I didn't go there, but they really wanted to bolster their membership, so they had a guest member program. And if, if the school you went to didn't have a band, you could march in the BC band. So I was actually in the BC band in the fall of 90 and made a lot of really good friends and made, I had friends that taught there. So as soon as I was done being a member there, I actually started teaching there. Um, so I taught the band there from 92 to 99, um, which meant going to every home football game, which is an unbelievable, you know, it, well, you're Clemson. I don't have to tell you um, what college game day is like, um, but really awesome atmosphere. And we were lucky enough to go to a couple of bowl games with them. Uh, while I taught there as well. That's fantastic. That's, that's really cool. And, you know, one of the things with band is that the unison of everybody working together and the amount of teamwork that you have to have to put on a performance like that. I mean, what type of practice and hours would you guys put in to be able to deliver that kind of performance? So are you talking BC or are you talking the, some of the other groups I was with? Yeah, BC. BC. Um, so BC, I, 
I'd call it a fairly competitive uh, band program only because, you know, some of the schools like, you know, probably the top marching band school in Massachusetts is UMass, right? They have a crazy band. They're really good. They basically practice pretty much every day for multiple hours. But when you're paying the kind of money to go to BC, your focus is not on marching band, right? So they, they practice a fair amount. They did, I think three out, well, we would do band camp before school started. And then during the football season, they would practice, I think three hours, three hours a night for Tuesday and Thursday nights and then game day on Saturday. Um, so it, yeah, it wasn't quite as intense as some of the other bands because, you know, obviously education is the, is the top priority. Um, but you know, we had good instruction and you had, you know, obviously smart kids go to BC. So they were, they were pretty good. So then what led you from, you know, the band aspect to then getting into endurance sports? Was that like a, a moment that you woke up or what got you yep. so, interested? So one of my buddies that I was in high school band with, um, was became a runner and uh, we were good buddies and I, I wasn't really into running, but he was training to run the uh, Boston marathon in 1995. And he said, you know, I need to do like uh, some long runs, like 15, 16, 18 miles. Um, and I could really use some company. And I was like, well, I can't run that far, but I'll throw on my rollerblades and I'm sure I can rollerblade that far. So all around the town of Dartmouth where we grew up, I would rollerblade carrying a backpack with water and food and stuff for him. And so I, I helped him on, in tr- on his training runs. So going and watching him in the marathon that year, I was like, man, this is something that I really think I want to try. So basically after the marathon in 95, I started training and I said, I'm going to run in 96. And so I actually got ready and ran the 1996 Boston Marathon, which is actually the hundredth running of the Boston Marathon. That was my first one. Couldn't have picked a better one for your first one. (laughs) That's a race you'll never forget. Totally, totally. I mean, the Boston Marathon, I love, you know, I've never run a marathon. I was actually kind of weird. I was training for my first full Ironman and I wanted the marathon at the end to be the very first marathon I ever ran. Yep. Uh, because yep. of that, I wasn't able to complete that race. So I still have yet to do a marathon. So, I mean, what a feat. What a feat. That is unbelievable. So you did one. Yep. Then did you immediately sign up for another? Did you get the bug? I know a lot of people talk about like crossing the finish line, having the emotions and just really catching that bug and and running with it. Uh, That that would be a big no for me. Um, (laughs) So, so just to put some context here, my first marathon was 96. My second marathon was 2010. All right. All right. (laughs) I basically, you know, it's funny training for your first marathon. And I'd say by the time I ran the marathon, I was kind of sick of running. Like I'd run too much. And so I think after that marathon, I probably went two or three weeks without running at all. Now, you know, since then I've done another 13 marathons and I've never had that break in there. But the first one, I don't know, something about it. I just kind of took a break afterwards. Um, but what I would, what I did do fairly soon after that. So I ran that in 96, the summer of 97, I did my first triathlon. Um, and it was just a little sprint triathlon, uh, down on the Cape. It was called the Hyannis sprint triathlon, um, quarter mile swim, 10 mile bike and a three and a half mile run. Um, and that bug definitely bit me pretty good. And I definitely, you know, that's how I got started down the triathlon, uh, road. What did your first marathon teach you about yourself? Um, it taught me that, and you know, this is an interesting thing because, you know, you call me an athlete and to me, you know, there's different kinds of athletes, right? There's, there's skill athletes like, you know, football, basketball, things that you got to be good at something to do. 
But endurance sports, like, you don't have to be good. You just have to have grit, right? So, and what it taught me about myself then is if I was going to, if I decided I was going to do something and I got it in my head that it was going to happen, I could make it happen. (laughs) And it's pretty interesting. There's some really interesting stats on marathons. I think 80% of people that start marathons finish them. And that's not an accident. It's, it's a mindset that people that are willing to put in the work, you know, because you don't wake up in the morning and run a marathon. At least most people don't. You know, it takes a couple months or, you know, six months of buildup of building a base of running and then, you know, three or four months of building up to the distance. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's a character builder. It, it proves, you know, it, it requires grit, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, and it, you know, requires mental toughness, which I, you know, People may disagree, but I think I'm pretty mentally tough. I, I would totally agree. <laughs> uh, doing 14 marathons, 60 triathlons, it's a lot of it's mind over matter and getting to that point where your body wants to give up. But yep. knowing that your mind is, you know, the one thing that can keep you going because your body can actually keep going. It's your mind that gives up before your body. Totally. totally. Um, and I ask that because, you know, taking that that leap going from nothing to your first race being a marathon, like that there has to be something inside that kind of changes that switch is in almost like a self-confidence booster of, wow, I can do that. That's, that is a huge feat that I'd never done before. Put my mind to it and accomplished it. And a lot of times it's like climbing the ladder, you're one ring up and no matter if you fall down, you know, you can always get back to that ring because you've done it before. And uh, a lot of my friends and I talk about that with like running where it's, you know, when you first do a, you know, one mile run is a long distance and then you do a 5k you get used to running three miles. Now the one mile run becomes easier. Now mm-hmm. next thing you know, you do a 10 K and that three mile run is now a warm up run. And, and, this, and now you do a half marathon and the five mile run is, Oh yeah, I'm just doing a quick five mile run on a Saturday. So the way that you kind of build your way up that ladder is, is um, something I think that goes with you in athletics, but also like from a career perspective or a family perspective, once you get to a point, you know, you can do it. Mm-hmm. The mental aspects gone. It's just now actually doing the activity. It's pretty funny the conversations you have with different people, right? Like if I say to a non-running person, yeah, I'm just going to go for a quick six. They're like, you can run six miles. <laughs> but my running friends would be like, you sissy, you're only running six miles. Like, you know, so it's, yeah. it's perspective. And, and, you know, I always say that, you know, do you want to be the fastest guy in your group? Cause you're never going to grow that way though. You know, the way you get faster and the way you get better is to train with people that are better than you. And, I'm pretty lucky in my life to have a lot of people that I know that are in a lot better shape than I am. So I can, you know, when I want to get better, I know who I want to hang out with. Yeah. And, and thank you for like our work events, putting together the group runs, even though I didn't show up to the last one at the last meeting. So thank uh-huh. you for kind of keeping us accountable uh, in doing that. And one of the, the things that you've put this to and, you know, the mental grit and fortitude and charging forward is, is not just, you know, personal health and well-being, but also to raise money by doing the, the pan mass challenge first tell us like what is the pan mass challenge what does it raise money for and then what is the event itself yep so the pan mass challenge is a a, a cycling fundraiser um, to give it a little bit of uh, props here it is the most successful athletic fundraiser in the world now let that sink in for a minute right how many fundraisers are there it is the most successful athletic fundraiser in the world um, a guy by the name of Billy Starr uh, in 1980 grabbed a group of friends and they rode from the middle of Massachusetts out to the tip of the Cape. And I think the first year they raised, I don't know, 10, 12, $15,000. It was, you know, and again, I'll say that wasn't much because when I tell you the numbers we're raising now, um, it's a lot more. 
So basically, it's a two-day cycling event. Um, there's a bunch of different routes, but the original cycling route that I've done every time is you leave on Saturday morning from Sturbridge, Mass. You ride from Sturbridge to Bourne. You, uh, you end right at the right at the Cape Cod Canal, which is in Bourne, and you stay overnight at Mass Maritime Academy. On the second day, you go over the Bourne Bridge, and you go basically the length of the Cape out to the tip of the Cape in P-Town. Um, so there's usually, it's grown quite a bit since I've been doing it. Um, but there's usually these days there's four or 5,000 riders that do that. Um, they're each required to raise a minimum depending on the route, but for the route I do, uh, the fundraising minimum is, is over $5,000 and they don't allow you to take it lightly because if you, you give them your credit card when you sign up and if you don't come up with $5,000, guess what? You're donating the rest. Um, so it's no, you know, it's no small challenge from an athletic standpoint, and it's no small challenge from a fundraising standpoint. Um, but last year, I think the check they wrote, so it, it raises funds for the Jimmy Fund for cancer research. Okay. I believe last year, the check they wrote to the Jimmy, Jimmy Fund was $48 million. So that's in two days, you know, not really two days, but an event the last two days, we're raising $48 million. That is, that is a feat. Yep. Yep. And how does that compare to like previous years? Uh, is that is that kind of now the norm, or it's, is that an anomaly of a year? No, it go, it goes up every single year. So you know they they've you know it started out with ten fifteen people doing a single route, and then you know there's all kinds of funny stories. They got lost because they didn't have good maps, and now it is so organized. The riders are so well cared for. The water stops have everything you could ever need. There's bike support. Like it's unbelievable how well this event is run. Um, but every year they try to figure out a way to add more people. So they've added some routes. So, you know, you don't have to do the original route. You can go from, from, instead of leaving from Sturbridge, you can go from Wellesley to Bourne. We call that hitting from the ladies tees, the guys that ride, you, <laughs> you know, anyway, but, um, some yeah. good fun amongst the riders. I oh, like for it. Sure. Oh, for sure. But, um, yeah, so they're always trying to add, add things, but the number always goes up. And I guess the caveat, and here's my plea for people listening this year, you know, and obviously the crazy stuff that's going on right now, the first thing they did is said, okay, even though normally we, we hold you accountable to raise $5,500 because of the times we're in, we're going to have no fundraising minimums. Um, so they said that about two months ago. And just within the last week or two, they said, uh, well, we're not going to be able to do this ride as a, as a group anymore or not for this year. Um, so basically my team is probably going to do the ride depending on the state of, you know, the world at that time, my team will probably do it together, but it's going to be virtual. So I think, you know, to increase the donation this year is going to be a monumental task just because, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of people uh, are not going to work as hard to fundraise. Um, I'm going to tell you that I'm working harder because I know that a lot of people aren't going to be. And I've actually already crossed the $10,000 mark in fundraising, but my goal is to get to 40,000, which is five grand more. Last year I raised $35,000. So my goal is to raise 40,000 this year. So having that passion in, you know, making that push, because like, you know, peer to peer fundraising is, is down. Uh, I work with a local nonprofit here. We have a, a 24 hour bike ride. We've had to make it a virtual event. We're seeing peer to peer fundraising down. We also see that a lot of it is people are afraid to ask their friends and family during this time. So to kind of put yourself out there and put the goal of raising $40,000, what drives that? Like what's your connection to the, the Jimmy fund and pan mass? So it's interesting when I first rode, so my brother rode for two years before I did. 
the first year I wrote, I had no connection to cancer. I just thought, you know, this is kind of a cool thing. I'm going to try it out. Since that year, I can't even, so first of all, my mother has, has, is now a breast cancer survivor. So really close family, um, countless, very close friends. Uh, some have beat cancer. Some have been beaten by cancer. So it's everywhere, you know, and I'll say that, you know, a lot of people are really willing to give to a cause like this because it affects so many different people. Like there's, you know, to try to find me someone whose life hasn't been touched by cancer. And, you know, if, if you find a person that's like that, they are so extremely lucky, but it, it'd be really tough. So, you know, it's very personal for me. Um, we had a, the captain of my PMC team was a cancer survivor. There's multiple members of the team that are cancer survivors. Some of them have spouses that are either people that fell to cancer or cancer survivors. So it's just very personal and um, trying to do something about it. Uh, that, that's that's wonderful. And do you find that like in riding the event, it's, you know, the raising of the money and, and making the impact at the end, but also for the survivors and the people that have family members that are fighting through it, that it creates a community and almost like a, I don't know, want to say a therapy session, but like riding together gives you some type of a purpose as you're going through that fight. Yeah. I mean, it's such an awesome, it's, People say, and it's not not joking, it's the best weekend of the, of the summer. Um, it's such a feel-good weekend. You know, people are, are clapping for you, ringing their cowbell, saying thanks for riding. Um, I'll probably tear up when I say this, but like little kids holding signs saying that I'm alive because you ride. I mean, oh my God. yeah. Crazy. Wow. crazy. Crazy awesome, but crazy. That'll get you over the bike. Um, yep. You know, I've got goosebumps right now. So thank you for sharing that. That's, um, that's awesome. That was really awesome. Love to hear the passion that, you know, making the difference in doing that. And, you know, some of the things that, you know, you challenge yourself to do is, you know, first and foremost, you took the first step by running that first, first marathon. And that took a friend leading by example and just doing something at their own Mm -hmm. and not even planning to impact you, which, then all of a sudden you started seeing that got involved. And I can only imagine how many people you've pulled into the, you know, the endurance sports and got them to maybe look at their lives and, you know, not by necessarily intent, but because you just being yourself. So thank you for being, you know, yourself and always pushing yourself. So being a dad of two, mm-hmm. you, family involved, you, so, kids following in dad's footsteps. So n- Yes and no. Uh, well, actually, totally yes. But specific to the Pan Mass Challenge, not yet. Uh, I got some work to do there. Um, you can ride when you're 15. You can start riding. And a lot of my teammates, uh, we have a team that's called National Rides for Hope that's obviously out of Nashua, New Hampshire, but a lot of really good friends that I ski and ride the PM- PMC with. Um, but a lot of their kids started riding as soon as they could at, fi- they could at 15. My older one is going to be 17, and she has not ridden yet. Um, they have done, uh, I think we did one, they have kids PMCs. So they're a little shorter, a little more intense. Um, so my kids did one of those a while ago, but on the endurance side, um, both my kids have done multiple triathlons. Um, there's a really, there used to be a really cool triathlon up in New Hampshire called the circle triathlon where they had kind of really short course stuff for little kids. My younger one, actually her first triathlon for the bike portion, she had training wheels on, um, (laughs) So just awesome and so fun. <laughs> That's gonna be cool to see as a father. Oh, it's hilarious! It was hilarious. And so they have a they have a really short one for the really little kids. They had a, a medium distance for the kind of the, the medium kids, and then they had a, a you know an adult uh, sprint triathlon. All three events were the same day. 
So it was really kind of a family event. And, and, and my girls really liked it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and then going bigger than that, uh, we are also a huge Disney family. My family loves, we go to Disney quite a bit. We bought into the timeshare there and my kids are in love with Disney. Well, my daughter, my older daughter one day said, Hey dad, you know, I, I think I'd like to do a half marathon. And I was like, wow, that's great. I'd really like to support that. And she said, and I want to do a Disney half marathon. So she was kind of blackmailing me, you know, yes. to, uh, to smart. get smart. But, but <laughs> she's a smart kid. She knows that's the currency that I will pay. So my older daughter has done two of the wine and dine half marathons down at Disney. Uh, and I, I ran both of them with her. Um, we did 2017 uh, and 2018. We did not go in 2019. We're actually signed up for 2020 and, you know, crossing our fingers that they can figure this stuff out so that we can actually run. Oh, that's gotta be a great experience to enjoy together. And you get to go to Disney while you're there. Absolutely. That, uh, the, the last time we went, you know, we got up, it starts really early in the morning, did the half marathon, went home, changed and went to the parks. Our step count that day was out of, out of this world. I think, (laughs) I think it was in the, almost in the 60,000 steps range for that day. Oh my God. That, (laughs) that's wild. I bet took a couple days to recover from all that walking. Sure. For sure. Yep. So Dan, the, one of the ways that we wrap up or that I'm wrapping up my average greatness is goes back to why I started doing this. You know, there's not for listeners, not for anything, but kind of giving people like yourself a platform to be able to share the message about the pan mass challenge, but also leave some breadcrumb trails along behind for my family so they can always get to know me. So mm-hmm. I'd love to do the same for you. And by that, I always ask the question, you know, if something were to happen to you, what message would you like to leave behind for your children, your family, or the world? Yep. So I have uh, two, two things here. The first one is to be grateful and to show gratitude. We practice gratitude in my house, which is thanking people for everything. Even things that you think that they should be doing, you thank them. Thanks for making dinner. Thanks for emptying the dishwasher. Thanks for making the bed. So, and, and that really promotes a lot of positivity that that is pervasive uh so gratitude would be my first one the second one um and this leads back to a ted talk that i watched um that was uh the result of a of a the long one of the longest studies ever done but it was basically tracing what makes people happy uh and they took a bunch of people at birth or close to birth and they followed them for 20 years and they surveyed them every couple of years to see you know which ones were happy and which ones weren't and what makes people happy is having good relationships and keeping in touch with people. Um, my dad was a real big family man. We spent a lot of time visiting family all over the country when I was a kid. And I have definitely taken that and run with it. Um, so any of my friends will know that I'm the guy that's always reaching out, always trying to get together. Um, but that's the secret to happiness is to have good connections with good people. So that. That's that beautiful. was that was passed on to me, and I want to pass it along as well. That is, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, being grateful and, and keeping in touch, and you know, it sounds like that was important to your dad and, and keeping those traditions and passing that along. So, thanks so much for for sharing all that with us today, Dan. Yep. Um, we're excited excited for what we've got to come next. And you know, a couple episodes ago, I was stumbling and how do I close? And in memory of one of my my friends. He used to, he's the one that taught me to tell people I love him. So I'm going to end every episode in, in honor of Mikey by saying, love you. From my average greatness, we love you all. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you.
Bye-bye. You've been listening to My Average Greatness, a show highlighting interviews with average people doing great things from every walk of life. We hope you found encouragement and most of all, inspiration. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, keep up with us on Instagram at My Average Greatness. Make sure to leave us a comment and don't forget to follow and share the podcast. You were not born to be average. You were born to be great. And maybe you'll be our next interview. Till next time.